0: Uh, Nathan is going to come and uh, speak to us from the word and what a great morning Uh, Nathan was saying to us this morning it's something that we read time and time again but it just comes alive and this morning thanks John for what you uh, brought to us in communion this morning that we're going to be drawn to the cross uh, today so uh, let's open those Bibles let's let's listen let's hear from the Lord this morning and uh, for those of you that don't know him this morning why don't you ask that he might come to you this morning, he might explain to you, he might just come in with his Holy Spirit and teach you about him this morning, that you too might come to know him as your personal saviour and Lord. Thank you, for, Lord God, for your word and we thank you for Nathan, your servant, this morning, that he might speak well in your name, Lord God, that he might speak through your Holy Spirit, that we might be edified and we might raise you up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Well, good morning. It's my privilege today to look at a very uh, significant passage in the Gospel of Luke. For those of you who are visiting today, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke over the last 20 or so weeks. And we've got to the, the point in this particular book, which is a climax for the work and ministry of Jesus. Before we open the text and look at Luke 23, I just want to ask you a a couple of questions or some observations. We all become very familiar with different aspects in life, don't we? Uh, I've noticed this uh, recently as we've just gone through that tumultuous time in our lives where we take three teenage learner drivers and move them to the nirvana state of pea platers and then on into further escapades behind the wheel. Now what you notice is when you take a learner driver and you you start teaching a a learner driver how to drive that everything around them is uh, new. Every aspect of the skill of learning to drive is new but as you go along the process over a couple of years, familiarity becomes part of the process. The driver becomes very familiar with the steering wheel and the distance to brake and the oncoming traffic, the indicators. If they're using a manual hopefully they're becoming familiar with the skill of changing gear but you know what happens, uh, that learnt process become very familiar. reminds me of a time actually um, where familiarity became something rather humorous in my life. We had just recently moved to uh, the States and as you're aware in, in that particular country they drive on a different side of the road and the cars are set up quite differently. I'd just been recently into the bank and... and um, I don't know about you, but normally when I go into the bank, it's about an issue, so you've got things mulling through your mind. And I moved out of the, the bank into the car park and hopped into the car to drive home. And I looked at it, and I sat in the seat, and I said, where's the steering wheel gone? <laughs> and then it dawned on me, I was sitting in the right-hand seat, the familiarity of years of driving had taught me that's where the steering wheel should have been. So I hopped up, very sheepishly, walked around the car, got onto the left-hand side and drove off. So we' become familiar with things. Sometimes familiarity can actually lead to contempt. I'll give you an example of that, for instance, how many times have you driven perhaps to work along a certain road? And as you drive along that certain road, you just become so familiar with it, you perhaps miss the red light or the stop sign or the strategically placed speed camera on the left-hand side of the road. Your familiarity thinks, oh, I'm not going to get caught. Because I've done this a thousand times before. And I think sometimes, this has been in my experience this week, as I look at the crucifixion of Christ, that sometimes familiarity takes away the absolute richness of what Christ has done. I would implore you today, don't get sick of looking at the cross. Don't become so familiar with these scriptures that it starts to mean nothing. Because you see, as we come to this section in Luke, we see a combination of what Jesus has brought his disciples to. You see a combination of the purpose of why he came to earth. He starts that in chapter 9 verse 21 where shortly after Peter confesses that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says this and he strictly charged and commanded them his disciples to to tell this to no one by his confession saying the son of man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day he will be raised. Prediction number one. A little bit further later in that same chapter after Jesus has said hey If you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. It's going to cost. You're going to have to lose your life to save your life. You're you're not going to be ashamed of me or my words. And then he gives his inner circle of disciples a glimpse of his glory by taking them up into the mountain. And he's transfigured before them. And they see his glory. And then Jesus says this, but while they were marveling at everything he was doing, verse 43 of chapter 9, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So then Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem like flint flint, with his disciples in 951. In the middle of this, this large journey narrative where he tells many parables about the kingdom. He has many discussions and many confrontations with the rulers, the religious elite of the day. In chapter 18, he foretells his purpose yet again. 18 verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. What is Jesus referring to when he, he grabs that and grabs his inner twelve and says, this is, a, this is what's happening, we're moving to Jerusalem. All the things that the Old Testament prophets have said about me are going to be fulfilled primary text there would be Isaiah chapter 53. It says, for he will be delivered over the Gentiles and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. Jesus purposely concealed to his disciples the true purpose of what was about to happen. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what he was saying. You say, why? Because these men were going to experience it firsthand. These men were going to be placed in a position where he takes the Passover and says, this Passover represents what is about to occur in the next three days. This Passover that re- represents redemption and atonement and those things is going to be superseded by my act of grace and love. We move over to chapter 22. He's just instituted the Passover. He just said, hey, this bread, this wine, this cup, it's a sign of the new covenant. Always do this in remembrance of me. And then, verse 22 of chapter 22 for me stands out like a beacon an absolute beacon. Verse 21 says this, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So in this intimate, beautiful moment, there is a betrayer. We know him as Judas. But Listen to the next verse. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Do not lose the significance of that. None of what transpires through this Gospel of Luke is unknown to Jesus. It has been determined. But woe to the man whom he betrayed. So, what is about to happen does not take Jesus by surprise. He says it's a fulfillment of Scripture. It's in God's preordained plan. And if you want another verse, go over to Acts twenty two. Uh, Acts two, verse twenty two. Same writer, Luke, post the crucifixion, says this about it. So these are two easy things to remember, eh? Luke twenty two, twenty two, Acts twenty two, twenty two. Good for those who like numbers. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. That explains the whole of the gospel account, does it not? He healed the sick. He made the lame to walk. He displayed that he was the son of God. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst of... As you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the what? The definite plan. Luke uses exactly the same word as he does in two twenty two, as he does here in Acts looking back to the cross. This was God's definite plan. And how do we know how definite it was? And the foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So who placed Jesus on the cross? When you look at those two things, that is the question. Who placed Christ on the cross? It was according to God's definite plan. Let's not forget that. Because that shows us the greatness of our God. It shows us His mercy and His love for a sinful humanity. the ever-present mission of Jesus, let us never forget, was the cross. Unlike all of us who come to live hopefully long and healthy, satisfying lives, Jesus came to die. He came to die for the sins of the world. The shadow of the cross never left the landscape of his life. When he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, it was in light of the shadow of the cross. Let's read together Luke chapter 23. Starting at verse 26, so I'll just read. I'm going to break this into three parts today. We're going to look at the road to Calvary we'll look at the interaction as Jesus and the two criminals are crucified at Calvary and then we'll look at the death of Jesus and in the end we're going to conclude why why did God have this definite plan and what impact is that for you and I because it's the most significant question in the history of the world So let's read these first few verses together. Verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Have you ever really spent some time looking at that? What is Jesus saying on his way to the place of the skull? firstly we see we see a, a man is seized luke tells us that simon of cyrene who was clearly in jerusalem for the passover a god fearing man an orthodox jew he came from the countryside the soldier sees him and says you carry his cross The other gospel accounts give us the the full account of the flogging and the torture that occurred prior to this point. So Jesus physically was spent. A Roman soldier wouldn't carry the cross because the Romans were administering the punishment. That was beneath them. So they grabbed Simon of Cyrene, who, by the way, God placed there for this point in time at this point in place to carry our Lord's cross. Who else is there in this scene? You'll find in the Gospel of Luke, as you've gone through it, and as if you've wrestled with the text, some of the observations you will make is Luke uses a lot of threes. Think about, uh, back a little bit, uh, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. It's a trifecta. It doesn't stop. And through here, you've got Simon of Cyrene. You've got a great multitude of people. And you've got women who are mourning and lamenting for him. This great multitude of people, you know and understand that during Passover time, Jerusalem just swelled in numbers it was anticipated that prior to Passover they were killing something like 230,000 lambs a day in the temple court. The modern day freezing works would be proud of that record. This is the significance of who came to worship at this point in time. They believed the city swelled to somewhere around a million people for Passover. And a great multitude had seen what had gone on Pilate's court, they heard from the elders that they were against Jesus. So they were following Jesus out of the city. And that's another thing. When the Romans crucified, it was never inside the city. It was always outside the city. The reason being, so as you entered the city, you see. Malefactors, criminals... Murderers, if you want to cross the Roman Empire, then this is what will happen. And you know, crucifixion was nothing new. Sometimes I think in our familiarity with this story, we think Jesus was the only person in history crucified. It's anticipated that they crucified around 20,000 people a year. This is not a new form of torture or execution. So it was a well-known practice. A well-known practice that was full of agony, pain, suffering. It was torture personified. And we see these Three people, Simon of Cyrene who humbly carried the cross, a great multitude following just to see what would happen and women who are mourning and lamenting. Have any of you been in the Middle East when a funeral dirge is going on? No, I didn't think so. It's loud. We're not talking sort of mild mourning in the reserved Australian, sort of New Zealand way here. We're talking bellowing, weeping, lamenting. And Jesus does a very interesting interesting thing and he turns to them. And he warns them. These daughters of Jerusalem become a metaphor for the nation. The term "doors of Jerusalem is not used that often throughout the scriptures. We came across it when we did the Song of Songs at the start of the year, and this is about the only other time. And I think Luke uses here to signify a national prototype, if you like. And he says, don't weep. Don't weep for me. Judgment's coming. Don't weep because it'd be more blessed if you were barren, more blessed if your womb had never born or your breast had never nursed a child. That's a great reversal here because right throughout the Old Testament, barrenness and things like that was considered something to be abhorred, that God was withholding favor. But here... Jesus says, when this judgment comes, it would be better if you didn't have the burden of children. And then he turns to them and quotes directly out of Hosea 10, verse 8. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? The quote out of Hosea is an interesting quote because it's there that God passes judgment upon the nation, upon Israel and Samaria. He passes judgment on them for their idolatry. But here, he's saying to the nation, my crucifixion, and your lack of response will cause judgment. Immediate judgment, eighty seventy, 70, when the temple was destroyed. Future judgment, we read in the book of Revelation. I think it's Revelation 6, where exactly the exactly same quote is used. But what God is saying, what Jesus is saying, is judgment will befall for this great atrocity. Let's read, verse 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged rallied at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other ridiculed him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into my kingdom, into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. All the gospel accounts give us pictures of the crucifixion. All the gospel accounts give us pictures of Jesus's clothes being divided. The mocking of Jesus that is, death, we'll see the cosmic signs. All the Gospels give us a picture of the death of Jesus, the centurion's confession, and the watching woman. What is unique to, to Luke is this wonderful verse 34. As he was being crucified he turned to his executioners and says father forgive them for they do not know what they do not only was he full of compassion and love at this moment of divine torture he cried out to his father to forgive what was going on this is unique to Luke The second thing that is unique to Luke is the interaction between the criminals on the right hand and the left hand side, so verse 39 through 43. But prior to getting to this, let's just see the response of those in the crowd, the response of the rulers, the response of the soldiers, and invariably the response of the two criminals. We know these things well. Luke doesn't name Golgotha. He doesn't name Calvary. He just calls it the skull. What are the people doing? They're watching. Verse 35, they stood by just watching the scene. What are the rulers doing? The religious elite. Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, what were they doing? Read it. They scoffed at him. Now, our English doesn't do justice to this word. You think of the vilest type of cursing and the vilest type of blasphemy that you could say to a person. You know, something like, oh, you're just an Australian. No, it's not quite that vile, it's a little bit deeper than that. You think about the vilest type of thing that could be said. This is the heart of what is going on with this scoffing. There's only one other place in Luke, there's only one other place in the New Testament this word is used. Funny enough, it's by Luke. And it's in Luke 16 and we discussed it not so long ago. Jesus had just given instructions on um, had to be generous with money. The Pharisees turned to Jesus. They heard these things and they scoffed at him because they were lovers of money. Luke 16, 13 or 14, something like that. It's the same intent, hatred. And they scoffed by blasphemy even further, saying, well, hey, you talked about saving others. Save yourself. If you're really the Christ. You know what? Little did they know that Sunday was coming. Little did they know that the resurrection would provide a way of salvation. But they scoffed. People watched. The rulers scoffed. The soldiers mocked. They fulfilled prophecy by offering him sour wine. We read that in Psalm 22. And they said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And they placed an inscription over his head, all in mocking tones. So the crowd stood and watched. The rulers scoffed and blasphemed. The soldiers mocked. And then we have the criminals one of the criminals who were hanged rallied at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In grammatical terms, it's kind of interesting because this is what they call a first-class conditional clause where he says, are you not the Christ? He doesn't really believe he's the Christ. He doesn't really think that's the truth, but he says it anyway and then says, save us. Pretty self-centered type approach to things, really. Last grasp. So we have the people watching, the rulers scoffing, the soldiers mocking, one of the criminals blaspheming. And then we have the other rebuking the first criminal. And his rebuke is one of confession and repentance. Don't you fear God, he says to him. You're on the same condemnation as this man. He said, "We, we, as criminals, we deserve the death we're about to get, but this man is innocent. This man is innocent. This man has done nothing wrong. This is the sixth time in this passage, in this very brief passage, that the innocence of Jesus is attested to. Pilate did it a couple of times. On the third time, he gave in to the crowd. Herod did it a couple of times. He's innocent. And now the criminal was saying the same thing. And then he says a request, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he turns and grants grace that superabounds my understanding. Stop and think about this for a moment. Jesus turns as he is in agony on the cross and he grants forgiveness, immediate forgiveness for the sin of that criminal. One cry from the cross resulted in eternal life with the king. It's the same for you and I. When we cry out in repentance and confession of our own sin, the Lord saves instantly. Let that provide hope. Let that provide comfort. Comfort in when we lose a loved one. Comfort when we get a diagnosis that is tragic. Jesus saves. He promises an internal inheritance that we just don't understand. Don't ever become familiar with this saying. At the heart of it is a repentant sinner crying out to a sovereign Lord who has the power and the ability to save. Now, you may be here today, you may not know the power of forgiveness. Jesus can forgive it all. No matter how vile, no matter how mocking, no matter how blaspheming, Jesus can forgive. Why? Because He is God's perfect sacrifice. Why? Because God's wrath and justice has been dealt with because of Jesus' sacrifice. Let's read Verse forty four through forty nine. It was now about six hours and was darkness was over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw that all had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances, or probably a better rendition, and all those who knew him well. And the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the death of Jesus. The cosmic sign is that the the place went dark for three hours. The cosmic sign is that the temple veil was rent in two. And we have Jesus' final cry on the cross. This is his third cry cry on the cross. Remember how I said Luke likes doing things in three? He, He records three of the seven. First one was, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. The second one was, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. And the third one is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Turn with me briefly back to Psalm chapter 31, please. I'm to read a few verses from Psalm 31. It's the Psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame, and your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus uses Psalm 31 in his last cry on the cross. And this is significant. Because the same assurance that David received from writing this psalm while he was under trial, Jesus affirms in his death. His father is the rightful and faithful just God. When Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's saying, I know your definite plan. I know I will rise again. And he's trusting faithfully that God will do this. Jesus knew that his atonement for sin was part of God's definite plan for the salvation of fallen mankind. And after quoting this psalm, he breathed this last. Resting on the faithfulness of God and his definite plan. Let's just look at the responses. We have a Roman centurion, a Gentile, praising God. What? How's that work? A centurion, a leader of a hundred soldiers, sees what has transpired in front of them, And what's his first response? It's not one of mocking, is it? It's not one of blasphemy. It's one of praise. He got it. A Gentile soldier got it. He praised God saying, certainly this man was what? Innocent. The second thief got it. You are innocent this soldier and the thief acted on their convictions unlike Pilate and Herod who said, yeah, you're innocent but I'm still just going to hand you over to the mob. Act on your convictions, folks. If you know that the Lord is dealing with you and your heart to draw you into a personal relationship with him, the Spirit is prompting you, act on that conviction. Cry out to him, Lord, save me. And he will instantly what about the rest When we had this great multitude of crowds, they were represented here too and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle interesting use of term when they had saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts they returned home there's an element of repentance here. We don't know how far that goes, but they had seen what had taken place. They too knew this man was innocent. They returned home and said, Oh Lord, what have we done? The crowd in this sense could represent the nation. But we're not told. But we are told that they returned home in anguish of soul. That's what this term would be better said, in anguish of soul. And then verse 49 we have, and, and all those who knew him, or some translations say his acquaintances, it's a better term, they knew him intimately, i.e. his disciples, maybe not the 12, but those, you know, he sent out 72, he sent out more than just 12, those who knew him intimately, and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So his disciples and the woman watched Observed what is going on. So simple question to conclude. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath and justice. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26 tells us that. Have a look at it in your own time. Do that this week. Start dwelling on the cross. Grab Romans 3, 21 to 26. Wrestle with those verses. Why did he die? To satisfy God's wrath. Why did he die? To demonstrate God's love. Okay, you've always got to have the justice and love in balance because that's what the cross is about. It's always got to be in balance. So let's not be familiar with this. Let's marvel at this. Let's marvel at this like the centurion who praised God. Let's marvel at this like the criminal who laid it all at the feet of Jesus. Let's watch like his disciples and the woman and take it in. that this act on the cross frees us from our sin if we put our faith and trust in him. Do you have your faith and trust in the one who can save? I invite the music team up.